1: the New Statesman.
0: Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Freddie. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. I'm Anoush Britain editor of The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have Rachel Cunliffe, our associate political editor, and Freddie Hayward, our political correspondent, who have been looking in our virtual mailbag for your questions. Rachel, what question have you picked? So
1: here is a question from Richard, who got in touch via YouTube. The economy will play a central part in next year's election. Do you know if people are better off than in 2010? I understand the average wages have barely moved. GDP has increased, but GDP per capita has fallen. How do you
0: think the Conservatives will try to convince voters otherwise? So I did look this up, Richard. um, And actually, the latest figures that I could find were from the Resolution Foundation, which is a very respected think tank on living standards. They found uh, earlier this year that workers in the UK are £11,000 worse off a year, after 15 years of, of wage stagnation. So it's the fact that wages haven't really grown. What, what stats have you guys looked up to add to that?
1: <laughs> uh, I've got a stat that I think you're going to hear a lot about in the year in the run-up to the election from the Conservatives, which is 4 million more people in work, mm-hmm. um, or thereabouts. In fact, you've already, like every time the ONS does more figures on, on uh, the unemployment rate. Every Conservative MP like posts a little press release on their website. So I think you're going to hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that we've had net migration. we had an influx of... Workers, which I would say is really positive. We've got more people working because they wanted to come to Britain to work despite Brexit, um, and those people are contributing to the economy and paying tax, and that's great. That's probably not the message that that's the not going in the press release. On no, the that's not the thing that they want to run on. Yes, we've got more people in work because more people have come here to work, <laughs> um, but also we have one of the highest employment rates in um, the developed world. Like our is low then you have to ask questions about the quality of those jobs. And clearly from the questions about pay, whether those jobs are good jobs and enable people to maintain their living standards and and pay their bills, to which the answer we've found in the last 18 months is often no, no, especially if it's insecure work, if it's gig economy work, uh, and and if pay has, has stagnated. But I think that Number that four million extra people
0: is something that you're going to hear. Yeah, a lot they about. call it their employment miracle or something, don't they? Yeah, and and, and it is a good story to tell. It you know, is good for people to be working, but unfortunately, the quality of those jobs and and the wages and how far they go is. I mean, when you've got forty percent of people who claim universal credit actually being in work, you've got to question the quality of that work.
2: Yeah, quite. I think what you're going to see is the government make relative arguments. So they, they did it um, this week with the autumn statement. They basically said, look, our growth is higher than uh, Italy, Germany, and they just listed these countries where we've had our high growth since 2010. Rachel Rees stood up and said, well, you know, these countries have had higher growth than that. So um, you're going to get these relative arguments. They're always going to find um, statistics that support their argument that the economy in some way is better off. Um, I think Labour did it as well. Today they basically said that the Conservatives, under the Conservatives, women aged 30 to 39 are £4,159, worse off in real terms since they came to power. So both sides are going to do it. Um, I think the most important thing is essentially that people won't feel as if they are better off. They'll feel as if they're in one of the worst cost of living crises in years, which they are. uh, And that's the most important thing.
0: Well, that comes to the second half of the question, which is how do you think the Conservatives will try and convince voters otherwise, i.e. that the economy is in a better state than some of our stats that we found suggest
1: so a lot of blaming it on COVID and a lot of comparing us yeah. to other countries and say that the whole world went through a pandemic mm-hmm. you can't expect us to be as robust as we would have been if COVID hadn't happened um i did a really interesting interview about a year ago with a woman called georgina sturge who is a researcher in the house of commons library and it's her job to find data and facts and figures for mps of all parties where they want to say look, has poverty gone up or down? And one of the fascinating things that she told me and that she writes about in her book is that there are ways of slicing and dicing these figures often that can tell you any story that you want. So Mm -hmm. whether you take it from 2010 or 2011 and whether you look at absolute poverty or relative poverty or child poverty or whether you uh, look at, uh, in regional terms, whether you look at people in work or out of work, like usually there is some version of the data that you can take and spin and she gives an example of uh cameron and i think i think it was ed milliband both arguing that child poverty had gone up or down Mm. and both being right Right, depending on how you looked at the figures so i think there will be data out there that will tell what seems to be contradictory stories but i think more important than that is the overall message about how people feel and on that it's much harder for the Conservatives to make a compelling argument because people know how they feel even if there's a government minister telling them that actually the data says this.
2: Yeah and it's also about the nightmares that drive politics and what people are scared of. Back in uh, the coalition years we had this big nightmare of the financial crash and that dominated the way in which we spoke about economics. I think it's completely changed now. Mm -hmm. And it's much worse for the conservatives, both in part because of the cost of living crisis we've experienced the past two years, and also, more importantly, the mini-budget. That's the key thing, I think, that will drive both the Conservatives on the defence and Labour on the offensive at the next election. It's the, the key sort of symbols in economics rather than the individual bits of data that will matter most.
0: Well, that's what I wondered about, the sort of framing of their um, sort of election message with the return of Cameron and everything. Will they go back to those kind of coalition post-crash era messages, which is, we know you're struggling now, but, you know, we're working hard incrementally to make things better, stick with us, and we'll finish the job. Or are they going to do more of what, Jeremy Hunt was doing at the Autumn Statement this week and saying the economy's turned a corner and, you know, things yeah. are looking up. And, and it sounds, I, I think, quite jarring. I mean, I, I think if I were them, I would probably go for the former. But either way, it's uh,
1: trying to convince the electorate to not believe their own experience. Yes. Because either you're asking them to not believe their own experience of what their lives are actually like and how bad the cost of living crisis is, uh, which seems delusional, and uh, you you wrote this week, Freddie, that it was like living in a parallel universe, Mm. alternative reality, or you're asking them to have collective amnesia and forget that the Cameron Osborne years were a decade ago and that they said, trust us now, make these sacrifices now, and things will get better... And they haven't, both of which I think come with quite substantial risks.
0: Yes. And of course, the the, the collective memory in the country is of the Conservatives crashing the economy, in inverted commas, rather mm. than Labour, which was the message under Cameron. After the break, um, it's your turn, Freddie, to ask a question. Can you give us a clue about what yeah, it's Yeah, we're going
2: to go into the Cabinet Room and see what's happening there.
0: If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this.
2: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
0: So, Freddie, what's the question?
2: So, Edwin has got in touch via Spotify and says... Steve Barclay is the seventh new environment secretary since 2016. Could you suggest any tweaks to our ministerial system that might disincentivise this constant churn in departmental leadership?
1: I wouldn't have started with uh, environment secretary. I would have started with housing secretary. Edwin's
2: priorities. Um,
1: because we've had <laughs> 16 of those and uh, actually some others. We've had seven foreign secretaries. Um, since when, sorry, Rachel? Sorry, this, since, 2010. Since, uh, this is the Brexit vote so This is since 2016. Um, seven chances of the exchequer, 13 housing ministers since the Brexit vote. And 16 since 2010. And 16 since 2010. Um, nine education secretaries since mid-2016. Obviously, one of those stayed in post for, I think, 72 hours.
0: Yeah. Um, and could- 11 justice secretaries since 2010, although Dominic Rubb did do it twice.
1: Does that does that count as two? I've I
0: counted him <laughs> twice, but yeah. Uh, so basically, I'm
1: I'm I'm agreeing
0: with the premise of the question, which is <laughs> this is a massive problem. But I don't think it's all about Steve Barclay. Well, there's a reason this makes a difference. So you know, you might think so what, but actually, it makes a big difference in the public services that they're supposed to be in charge of. So I after the reshuffle, the most recent reshuffle, I was speaking to people high up in the prison service. Um, and they were annoyed that they're now on their ninth prison minister since 2010. And, and the reason they said um, that it makes a difference is because as soon as a new, especially Secretary of State, comes in, they changed the entire focus of what their predecessor was doing, even if they were in the same party. So apparently when Liz Truss took over from Michael Gove at Justice, and Michael Gove had more of an emphasis on rehabilitation and redemption of prisoners and was quite popular within the service, Truss said nobody's interested in the vanity projects of their predecessors and you know, completely changed the focus. And that is... Ju- just such a pain because then, you know, you have all of these new memos and diktats from, from the department and you have to change course <clears throat> entirely. And it just means that the service struggles more. Yeah. So that's just one example.
2: Yeah. So And then how would we stop that? I think it's very hard to. The reason that you have this churn is that the cabinet system is set up in a way that members are there completely at the whim of the prime minister so if the prime minister changes if there's political um, turmoil at the top of government since 2016 as we've seen then of course you're going to get this turnover i don't think you'll be able to change that necessarily without changing the fundamentals of our constitution which aren't going to happen so you have to focus on political stability Um, and you have to think okay well why is it that since 2016 we've had the need to uh, remove so many prime ministers and therefore Mm -hmm. have so many reshuffles. In part, it's because we've had Conservative Party politics dominated by personal feuds in the past 10 years. We've also had an increase in factionalism and, of course, we've had Brexit as well. So these things have come together and they've resulted in... The resignations, uh, you know, the the fact that prime ministers want to bring their supporters in. Yeah. Uh, but it's worth saying that that patronage um, is also important in terms of party management. It's the reason that uh, whips, government whips, can pass the uh, the policies that are contained in the manifesto. So you can't get rid of that. But it goes both ways. So ministers can also resign when they're uh, disillusioned with the prime minister. We saw that the the fi- the only way that we could really get rid of Boris Johnson was through a series of mass resignations. Um, in the cabinet. So th- that's the system. I think you have to look at the fundamentals of why those things happen rather than changing the system itself.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, I think the IFG produced a report um, a few years ago, 2020. They argued to avoid this churn, the prime minister should set an expectation that secretaries of state stay in post for at least three years and ministers at least two years and avoid frequent reshuffles and improve the process of handovers. And, and other, other than the third one, I think that's the, just first, two, the, question, the first two are just, you know, very politically difficult yeah. because reshuffles and patronage are the, are two of the great biggest powers that the Prime Minister's hand. Yeah. I, w- I would say something else in addition to that, because if you can't
1: turn off the political chaos, and I think if they, if they could turn off the political chaos, they, they would have done so, um, you've got to look at the civil service. Yeah. And there's been a lot of criticism of the civil service uh, and talk of how it's become to politicised or how actually it would be better if it was more politicised, if we had a system more like America, where the government, the prime minister and departmental heads could bring in their own civil servants, their own sort of officials to to run those departments. And actually, SPADs, special advisors, are relatively new, or the power, or certainly the, the number of them is relatively new. You know, it used to be that... Ministers set the agenda, but the actual work of running those departments and working on those departments' long term priorities was done by career civil servants who worked under multiple administrations, different parties, and kind of knew what they were doing. So you could have this political churn at the top, but the sort of important. The institutional work,
0: memory at the yeah, it yeah, would, it it department would, level.
1: Yeah, it would keep going. And I know a lot of people find that very contentious. They like the idea of unelected civil servants running things. But, you know, this is the alternative, which is that really difficult long term challenges just don't get addressed or work get done on them and then get scrapped because the prime minister's had a, a, a political crisis and has needed to, to do an emergency reshuffle. And it's the people engaging with public services
0: that feel the impact of that. Mm. And it causes stasis in the civil service, doesn't it? If they think, oh, we're just going to get another minister in a few months' time or another secretary of state, they don't bother, you know, try- kind of rushing through the priorities of their current one. And also, just on the basic level, you know, that suddenly everything has to change, including the font that they put their reports the in. The red, red, <laughs> red box, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, we have to change everything from Times New Roman to Arial because this minister's mm. tastes are different from the last. It's just, uh, It's just so inefficient. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions. They're really great questions this week, I thought. Um, and we do read them all, so please keep them coming in. If, if you'd like to send them, there's various ways you can do so. You can write them in at newstatesman.com forward slash us, and that's now a Google form. If you're listening on Spotify, you can scroll down on the episode page and leave a reply, and YouTube viewers can put a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Rachel Cunliffe and Freddie Hayward. We'll be back tomorrow.